Good morning. Interesting the different responses. I heard somebody say Jesus. <clears throat> and that's not a bad response. The thing is, we're probably going to use this again sometime in the sermon. And you don't know when. So I would encourage you to not doze off because our defibrillator is not working. Heart attacks we're not prepared for. So please try to stay awake with us this morning. In the last series, Pastor and Pastor Jason and myself have had the opportunity to share with you on looking for Jesus. We went through Thessalonians, and there were several topics that we talked about. Pastor dealt with two of the three, three Sundays on the rapture of the church, on the church being ready, and what that was going to look like and what we should expect. And on the heels of that, and though this is not a part of that series, I believe it does fit in, because uh, I, th- this is what we call a, a, a freestanding message. In other words, it's in between series. But yet, I wanted some continuity to it. And so, when I was thinking about the sermon title, I told Marcy, when she's putting the bulletin together, I said, put in there the three R's. And when I say the three R's, what usually comes to your mind? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, which means school is about to start. And back in my day, that was pretty much it, reading, writing, arithmetic. There wasn't computer science, and there wasn't all of these things that we have today. But the importance of the reading, writing, arithmetic was to get you ready for life, to get you ready for a future that you have yet to experience, to prepare you for a lifetime and a lifestyle of living that you had never encountered up at that point. The other morning I woke up and there were three words that came to my mind. Reformation, restore, and rebuild. So I came over to the office, I wrote them down, I began looking at them, and then the R's just started to roll. Renewal, uh, repentance, revival. uh, Just a lot of the R's that came forward. But I'm going to deal with three this morning. And I believe that this is a message for the church, and if you are here with us as a first-time guest, uh, perhaps you attend church somewhere. And if you do, I feel that this is a message you can take back to your church as well. There's, there's a message that we have in this building, and this is the house of God. This is the house of God. There's a message we have in this building that really bothers me. And no one would normally see it unless you come in through the doors and you look at our alarm panel. And it says, church not ready. Church not ready. And that bothers me. And every time I walk by it, I look at it and it bothers me because there's something inside of me is saying the church ought to be ready. The church has to be ready. The church needs to be ready. 
And I'm, and I'm so thankful that as, as, as we share God's Word with you, you're so gracious enough that in our different personalities, uh, Pastor Jack and his personality, Pastor Jason and his most uh, favorable impressions that he does, and, uh, and when I get up here to, to share with you, you're so gracious to, to look beyond the personalities and, and hear the message, hear, hear what God is wanting to say. And some of the things that I'm going to share with you this morning, I have a license to do simply because of, of experience. Having senior pastored for, for 30 plus years, I have not seen it all, but I've seen a lot. I haven't heard it all, but I've heard a lot. I haven't witnessed everything, but I've witnessed a lot. And there's something in my heart, as Pastor brought us through this series, Looking for Jesus, there's something that rekindled this interest of knowing that the great day of the Lord is imminent. That Jesus is coming back. He may come back today. For some of you, if you're lucky, he may come back before I hit this horn again. But nonetheless, he's coming back. And the scripture says that he's coming back for a church that is without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's coming back for a people who has been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not a perfect people. Not a people without flaws or failures. But there's something about the church. You see, church has always been dear to me. I grew up in the church. If we weren't having church, my mother took me somewhere where they were having church. Aside from being at home with my family, and now my children are gone, aside from being home with my wife, the second most place that I love to be is in the house of God, is with God's people. But we all don't share that feeling. We all don't share that sentiment. Some of us here today are here because we want to be. Some are here because we're expecting God to do something. Some of us have come today because we're still out of the old tradition coming out of obligation. And it's like, this is all I know I'm supposed to do. So I come on Sunday morning and I put in my hour and a half and I go home and I'm good for the week. But that's really not what God has designed for His church. I I taught Wednesday night class And one of the questions that I asked them, I said, have you ever in your life been disappointed with your body? And a lot of hands went up. And I said, well, why? Well, some of them was because my body's too short, my body's too tall, my body's too big, I don't like the features of my body, my body, my body, my body. And we talked about that a little bit. And then I asked them the question. I said, God has a body and we're it. Do you ever think that God looks down from the portals of heaven and he looks at his body and he's disappointed? God at times has probably disappointed with his body. That's you and I. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to share three words with you. Reformation, repentance, and revival. And I'm going to take from Scripture some passages that we don't normally deal with. One of them is out of 2 Chronicles chapter 29. There's another passage out of the book of Joel, which Joel being one of the prophets, that we love to read Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. In the last days God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, and the old men will do this, and the young men will do this, and the servants and the handmaids and the daughters will do this. And we all love to read the blessing. But we don't like to read chapters 1 
through chapter 2, verse 27, because it talks about a call to repentance. It talks about a time of cleaning. So with that in mind, let me give you some background. In, in the, the, first, the first information that we have for you this morning is this. Reformation must be thorough. Reformation must be thorough. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 4 and 5, it says this. Speaking of Hezekiah, this was probably one of the greatest periods of Reformation and renewal that took place under his reign. You see, his father and his predecessor, King Ahaz, was corrupt. He had promoted idolatry. He had shut the doors of the temple. He had persecuted the priest. He had left the idols laying and strewn into the temple. And God is speaking to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, I'm calling you now to clean up my temple. There is a time for a cleansing that I'm calling you for. And Hezekiah answers this call, and this is what he says in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. He brought in the priest and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side, and said, Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Now, however this speaks to you this morning, please keep in mind, in Hezekiah's day, they're referring to the temple of the Lord. In our day, it becomes the house of God. In our personal lives, the word says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But the point is, there's a time that God is calling for the church to experience a cleaning. There is a cleansing that needs to take place. And we realize that within every believer, there's a secret place. There's a sanctuary that we must prepare for the Lord. Because we never know when the time's going to come. When the sound is going to take place. When the trumpet is going to blast. And there's no time left for cleaning up. You see, in every one of our lives, there's a certain times that we set aside for cleaning. Some of us, you know how we are. We take a shower once a week, whether we need it or not. That's just, that's just our weekly ritual, right? We jump in the shower once a week, usually Saturday night, so we can kind of come smelling pretty good for Sunday morning. For some of us, we have a set time, and ladies, and, and, and if your husbands uh, are gracious enough to help you, there's a, usually a set time that you clean the house. Sometimes it's a spring cleaning. And that, of course, involves the windows, and that involves the blinds, and sometimes you're shampooing the carpets. But on a weekly basis, and I'm, I'm glad that I can say this, and my wife will back me up, most of the time I help my wife clean our house whether I'm running the vacuum or mopping the floor and she's cleaning the bathrooms. but we, It's kind of a concerted effort, but, but at least once a week our house gets clean. And we know there's a certain time for that, and we can tell when it needs it when we begin to see things littered around on the floor. When we things, see things kind of, and our house is never, never a pigsty, but, but, but it's just everyday living. 
And we begin to see the articles on the floor, and we see things in the kitchen, and especially if we've had a lot of family in, and we realize there are indicators that tell us it's time to clean the house. And friends, I believe with all of my heart that as this message dovetails with the series Looking for Jesus, God is saying to us as a church today, it's time to do some cleaning. It's time to do some cleaning. Some of you guys, if you've grown up taking care of your cars, you know that there's a certain time that you wash your car. When I grew up, I didn't have a car of my own. I used my parents' car. But one of the requirements was that every Saturday, the car had to be washed and vacuumed. So every Saturday was my time to clean the car. I've carried that into my adult life, and usually on Saturdays, in fact, every once in a while, the boys will call and they'll say, where's dad? And they'll say, oh, he's out washing the car. Because that's what I do. That, that, that's usually a Saturday event that get the cars cleaned up before Sunday. There's times in our life when we set aside for cleaning. Times when the windows need to be cleaned. And that's not, that's not a fun time, ladies. I understand that. Because I don't usually clean the windows, but I do most of the time clean the screens. So my wife pulls the screens out and I take them out on the deck with a hose and, and soapy water and I clean all of the screens and she's cleaning the windows and we put them back in. But whatever period of time it is, there's a time set aside and, and every once in a while it's good for the church to take a look introspectly, not only into the body of Christ, but into our personal lives and allow the Holy Spirit to show us there's some things inside of us that are kind of cluttering up. There's some things inside of us that are looking a little nasty and so God, it's time for a good house cleaning. Because here's what I found. Before God will move in power, he will always move in holiness. You see, we, we want to bypass that, that certain step. And we say, God, I want you to move in my life. I want you to move in my family. I want you to move in my church. I want you to move in my community. I want you to move in, in, in our country. I want you to move around the world. And God will always first move in holiness before he moves in power. And so when we understand this, there is a hope and there's a joy and there's a peace and there's an excitement and anticipation that God is up to something good, but he's taking us through a period of time to helping us to understand that some things have got to be cleaned up. And being a pastor as long as I have, I've learned this. In fact, you can track it in most churches, even though they don't identify it, they understand it. About every four to five years in the life of a church, you will go through four cycles. Every four to five years, those cycles kick in. First, there will be a, a period of, of preparation. This is just a great period. Praise, worship, everybody's excited. People flood into the church. It's just fantastic. Then after that period of preparation, there comes a time of harvest. And you begin to see neighbors coming to Jesus and, and family members coming to Jesus and people looking at the I-90 sign or watching Fully Alive and they call in and say, I, I've, I've asked Jesus into my heart and this great harvest time takes place and we get in a euf spiritual euphoria that is, oh, this is an exciting time. And usually after the cycle of harvest comes sifting. 
if we don't understand this, we begin to think that there's something wrong with the church. And we start looking around. Is it, the, is it the council? Is it the pastor? Is it the worship leader? Is it the Sunday school teachers? Is that person sitting next to me, are they the problem? But God brings his church through a period of sifting. And when we know it's a God thing, we know everything's going to be all right. Because in the end, God's going to have his way. God's going to bring us out. And after that period of sifting, then comes a period of maturing. And that's where we have learned. We've educated ourselves. We've grown wiser. We've gotten smarter. We've learned a few things. And so we've went from preparation to harvest to sifting to maturing. And that's a normal cycle that a church goes through. But what God is saying today and what God is, is telling to Hezekiah, he's saying, I want you to go in and, and restore this temple because your dad was corrupt. He allowed idolatry going on. He closed the doors. There was things happening in the temple that should not be happening in the temple. God was being ignored instead of being exalted. And this temple has been shut for many years. And the fathers and the forefathers have sinned and they brought in corruption and transgression. And God is saying, go and open the temple and cleanse it. And as he says in verse 6, he says to the Levites, I want you to remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Get rid of it. It's nasty. It's nasty. You see... A cleansing of our thoughts and attitudes on the inside will reflect in our actions and our behaviors on the outside. Now, most of us men wouldn't know a whole lot about this, but ladies, you will. Can you imagine that if you take your stove and shine it up on the outside? I mean, that chrome polish and that detergent and it is, it is just sparkling, and people come in and say, Oh, what a beautiful stove, what a beautiful appliance. Until they open the door. And they say, Hmm, this must not be one of those self-cleaning ovens. Because <laughs> there is gunk in there. There is, there is pie crust and there's cheese that has ran over. And there's all of these food particles in that oven that hasn't been touched for years. And on the outside, it looks beautiful. On the outside, it looks pretty. On the outside, it looks like it can even function. But when you open the door and begin to look at the internal part of the appliance, it's nasty. No different if we did that to our refrigerator. We wash it up and spick and span and the sponge and we get it all looking nice and we open the door. There's the cheese. Green cheese. And that wonderful dish of sausage and onions and peppers that we loved a month ago is still in there. And, and for, for those of us uh, horseradish aficionados, that when we have roast beef, we like horseradish on our roast beef. But when we put it back last month, we forgot to tighten the lid. So we open up the refrigerator door and whoo, we are hit by a smell. Because even though it looks nice and pretty on the outside, on the inside, 
There's got to be a cleaning. And no different with the toilets. We can clean them up on the outside. But I know enough about toilet bowl cleaner that I know you've got to squirt that in there. You've got to let it set for a while and take the brush and scrub and scrub. And, and, and guys, if you've never done this, you've got to get up under the lip of the seat. Okay? You can't just, it's not a plunger, it's a brush. So you've got to clean, you've got to clean, and you flush it, and then you rinse out the brush. And you, because, you see, it's not enough to look clean on the outside. And that's why when we read through this scripture and God is saying to his people, I want you to rend your hearts and not your garments. It's not the outward appearance I'm concerned about. It's the issues of the heart. It's not the exterior of, 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 of your life that I'm concerned about, but it's the inside, integral parts of your heart that I'm concerned about. So God speaks to Hezekiah and he brings him into one of the greatest periods of reformation that history has ever known because God has called him to come and clean up the temple. There's another man that we're going to look at. His name is Joel. Because if reformation must be thorough, we also must know repentance requires commitment. Repentance requires commitment. Now, do you, do, have you read, if you want to turn to Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, here's what the scripture has to say. Blow the trumpet in Zion. See, I borrowed earplugs before the service, so I'm just kidding. We probably won't use that again so you can rest and relax. And I didn't have a trumpet, nor could I blow a trumpet. And if I brought a shofar in, I would just be spitting out the end of it. I can't play those either. So being lack of of creativity as I am, I got the air horn. But I guarantee you, you will remember that for a couple of days when you leave here. But in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, here's what... Joel is saying, the prophet Joel is saying to the people, because you see, what had happened was there was predicting a day of destruction was taking place. So he says this, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will it be again in the ages to come. Now, in this particular part of history of the, of, of the Bible, Zion was the, once the seat of divine government. It was the place where the temple was located. That now has transitioned, and God says, not only am I in Zion, but he says, I want to establish a place, I want to establish a presence everywhere that my people will congregate, everywhere they will come together and call me Lord and worship me and follow my precepts and walk in obedience to my word. God says, that's where I want to be. So now we're not blowing the trumpet in Zion anymore. We're blowing the trumpet in our church. Because this is the congregation of God's people. And what was happening here was Joel is calling for repentance. 
See, God wanted to bless his people. And don't ever misunderstand that, church. God wants to bless you more than you want to be blessed. So how can that be? Because if we wanted to be blessed more than God wants to bless us, we'd be doing a whole lot of things different than we're doing. But God says, I've got a blessing. I've got a blessing. In fact, it's more than you can contain. I've got a blessing for you. I've got a blessing for your family. I've got a blessing for your children. I've got a blessing for your co-workers. I've got a blessing for your neighbors. God says, I just want to bless you. But what he's trying to get across in a fatherly way, he's saying, children, you've got to repent. You haven't been following what I'm asking you to do. And sin is withholding the blessing. Sin is withholding the blessing. You see... For the people in, in, in Joel's time, they were facing the immediate day of the Lord, and that's the locusts. And they were predicted come in as a great cloud, it would be dark. And if you remember when I first came up here, the lights went down and it went totally black, and you really couldn't see much of anything, but all you heard was this shrill, piercing sound coming out from the front of the church. Kind of de- depicting a little bit of what's happening in the day of Joel. The imminent day of the Lord, they were going to have to deal with the Assyrian army because they had predicted they were coming and as a mighty army joined together, they were coming for the destruction of the people. But Joel more specifically now is indicating there's an inescapable day of the Lord and that is when God brings his judgment. And when he brings his judgment, it's too late. It's too late. And so we come back to this understanding. God's judgments were never to have been considered punitive in design. But always remedial so that mankind might repent and be restored to God. And and let me help you with something. Let's first of all get rid of the fallacy that, that, that pastors never go through difficult times. Let's get rid of this concept that because we're on staff and because we get to come and stand on a platform on Sunday that that we don't understand what you are going through. Time would not permit me and you probably would not be all that interested for me to stand here and speak to you from the beginning of, of what I can remember of my life and all of the things that had transpired and transitioned. And I'm not talking about church problems. I'm just talking about life. Just life. See, we're not exempt from that. Conversion does not bring exemption. When we come to Jesus Christ and we confess Him as Lord and Savior and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, that doesn't mean that life is going to be a bowl of cherries from now on. There will be difficult times. There will be valleys. There will be dark moments. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. But thanks be unto God, we serve a God that is so big that He is with us always, even to the end of this earth. He is a God of second chance. He's one there that will never leave us or forsake us, but He walks with us all the way through those times. That's the kind of God He is. So you see... His judgments were never have to been considered punitive, but always remedial. And you understand that with your children. 
You don't spank your kids because you punish them. You discipline your kids because you love them. And God does that for us. He does that for His church. And we look and say, God, why are you allowing the church, the church, the church, the church? And God's saying back to us, because I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. But what He's saying to us today is God will not live in a dirty house. He will not live in a dirty house. I don't want to live in a dirty house. And thank God I've been so blessed with a wife that sees it the same way. <laughs> she doesn't want to live in a dirty house. And God's saying, I just can't. I love you, but I can't, I can't live where there's clutter and there's mess and there's food droppings and there's leftover baked stuff in the oven and the, under the, the ring of the toilet. Nobody's ever... I just can't live there. And if you just go through and clean some things up, then I want you to know I want to come and bless you and love you and be with you all the way through this journey, but I can't do it in a dirty house. But here's what Joel says. In fact, what happened with Hezekiah. If you read the rest of chapter 29 and 30, after they cleaned up the temple, they hauled everything out of the way. The scripture says that they began to sing and praise and worship. That the offering, the tithe was reinstated. They began to bring offerings. They began to bring sacrifices. They began to bring tithes. And all of these things now were celebratory after they had cleaned the temple. And Joel is saying the same thing. In fact, what he's saying is, is if we understand the trumpet and we understand the alarm and we understand what we need to do, then he says, and afterward, Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He said, well, why is it old men dream dreams and young men see visions? Because the older we get, the more we sleep. And these young bucks, they never sleep. They get a couple, three hours, they think they're good. And, and God has instilled in our young people today this concept of being visionary. And, and they're out there. They're, I mean, they're, they're cutting edge. They're off the edge. They're over the edge. It's, their mind just doesn't stop. And some of us that are hitting that, that, that age of where, you know, we just, okay, yeah, I know it's a vision. And if I wake up in the morning, I'll, I'll keep looking at it. But right now, I'm going to sleep. But the interesting thing is also, did you catch this? That I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, allow me a license to say that not only is God wanting to pour out His Spirit on His church, but I believe that God is big enough that His Holy Spirit not only is going to descend upon the body of Christ and the handmaids and the old men and the young men and the servants, but I believe there is coming a day when the Holy Spirit is going to penetrate the heart of the most difficult and most degenerate unbeliever in the life that you have ever seen. And the Holy Spirit is going to pierce that heart and bring them to Jesus. That's the God that we serve. We used to call that revival. 
But you see, the third point is revival is more than a ritual. It's been interesting over the years of ministry, when I look through the newspaper, I will see, and, and, and I know they're well-meaning, but the church will place an ad in the paper. Revival, August 2nd through 14th, revival. We're going to promote it. We're going to market it. We're going to broadcast it. And if you come between August the 2nd and the 14th, there's going to be revival. And when I was growing up, we didn't understand revival. I thought revival is when you get all those derelict neighbors and family members of yours yours, and bring them into the church and let God clean them up. That's not revival. See, revival's for the church. Revival is for the believer. Because when the believer gets revived, we begin to see lives changed. Until the believer gets revived, God is not going to bring the unbeliever in from his lifestyle and put him in a condition that's worse than what he just came out of. So there's got to be a change. And that's what we used to call revival. We'd sing fast songs, preach messages, see how far, get our hankies out, see how far we could spit. The farther you spit, the more anointed you were. And then at the altar call, they would give an altar call, and that poor fellow that happened to be there because he didn't want to be anyway, he's back there about two rows from the back, and and these dear people would go back, and and I would look up as a teenager, look at the back row, and, and it's like a swarm of bees around this poor guy. He's already got his head in his hands. They're talking to him. Don't you want Jesus? Don't you want Jesus? Do you want to go to hell? Are you going to hell? What are you going to do? You need to make a decision. You need to come to Jesus. And finally, I know that some of those conversions would just, dear God, if I have to go to the front, I will just to get these people to leave me alone. And then, bless our hearts, those dear precious saints that worked so hard to get this person to come to the altar because Jesus was going to lift their load and their burden of sin. Pray them through. They would stand up and they'd get into their face and say, okay, now you've got to understand, you've got to start reading your Bible every day and you've got to start tithing to the church and you can't miss a service when it comes to church and if they had some cigarettes in their pocket, they'd reach over and pull those out and say, and you can't do this anymore and you can't do that anymore and you can't do that anymore and this great load that was lifted, thanks be unto God, they just turn around and put another load right back on them. And we call that revival. I really don't think that's what God had in mind. Because you see, revival is an act of being revived. That's profound, isn't it? It'll be three days to find that. An act of being revived. It is a renewed attention or interest, restoration of force, validity, or effect. That's revival. A revival based on ritual will bring only repeated altar calls with repeated failure. To know God calls for complete commitment, which is God's avenue for continued blessing. I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but I will dare say there will be very few hands that would be raised to say, Pastor Don, I remember being in a revival, a true 
genuine revival. Very few of us have ever experienced that. See, I've read about them. I've read about the Great Awakening, and I read about Brownsville, and I've read about Toronto, and I've read about some of these things. But very few of us have ever experienced. But listen to me as I'm getting ready to close this morning. I still believe there's a time before the return of Jesus that God wants to step down out of heaven and place a visitation on his church. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe there is a time that God is wanting to move on the lives of his people. And I went back into history a little bit, and none of you were around at this time I, I, that I know of. But I picked out three revivals. This is going to be foreign to you. Most of you will not understand what I'm reading because you've never experienced this. But listen, and I want you to listen to the dynamics. I want you to listen to both what isn't in it and what is in it. All right? It's not that lengthy. I got an early start, so I'm going to get still have you out of here by 1130. Unless I decide to blow the horn again. It was 1904, all Wales was aflame. The nation had drifted from God. The spiritual conditions were low indeed. The church attendance was poor, and sin abounded on every side. Suddenly, like an unexpected tornado, the Spirit of God swept over the land. The churches were crowded so that multitudes were unable to get in. Meetings lasted from 10 in the morning until 12 at night. Three definite services were held each day. Evan Roberts was the human instrument, but there was very little preaching. Singing, testimony, and prayer were the chief features. There were no hymn books because they had learned the hymns in their childhood. No choir because everybody sang. No collection, no advertising. Nothing had ever come over Wales with such far-reaching results. Infidels were converted. Drunkards, thieves, and gamblers were saved. Thousands reclaimed to respectability. Confessions of awful sins were heard on every side. Old deaths were paid. The theater had to close down because nobody was buying tickets. Mules in the coal mines refused to work. And in five weeks, 20,000 people came to Jesus. That's revival. This would kind of be a good time for a do-it-again, Lord. In the year 1835, Titus Cohen landed on the shore belt of Hawaii. On his first tour, multitudes flocked to hear him. They thronged him so that he had scarcely time to eat. Once he preached three times before he had a chance to take breakfast. He felt that God was certainly at work. In 1837, the fires broke out. Nearly the whole population became an audience. He was ministering to 15,000 people. There was not an hour, day or night, when an audience of from two to 6,000 would not rally to the signal of the bell. There was trembling and weeping and sobbing and loud crying for mercy, sometimes too loud for the preacher to be heard. And in hundreds of cases, his hearers fell in a swoon. Some would cry out, the two-edged sword is cutting me to pieces. The wicked scoffer who came to make fun of the service would drop like a dog and cry, God has struck me. Once while preaching in the open field to 2,000 people, a man cried out, what must I do to be saved? And prayed the sinner's prayer, and the entire congregation took up the cry for mercy. For half an hour, Mr. Cohn could not get a chance to speak, but had to stand still and see God. 
Quarrels were made up, drunkards reclaimed, adulterers converted, murders revealed and pardoned, thieves returned stolen property. Sins of a lifetime were renounced. In one year, over 5,000 people came to the church. Over one year, there was over 1,700 baptized on one Sunday alone. 2,400 sat down to have communion together. Once the chiefest of sinners now became the saints of God. And when Mr. Cohn had left, he himself had personally baptized over 12,000 people. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. In the little town of Adams across the line in the year 1821, a young lawyer made his way to a secluded spot in the woods to pray. God met him there, and he was wondrously converted, and soon after filled with the Holy Spirit. His name was Charles G. Finney. The people who heard about it became deeply interested, and they gathered in the meeting house that evening. Mr. Finney was present. The Spirit of God came on them, and the mighty convicting power and the revival started. It spread to the surrounding country until finally nearly the whole of the eastern states was held in the grip of the Almighty Awakening. Whenever Mr. Finney preached, the Spirit was poured out. Frequently, God went before him so that when he arrived at the place, he found the people already crying out for mercy. Sometimes the conviction of sin was so great and caused such fearful wails of anguish that he had to stop preaching until it subsided. And here's the interesting part. Ministers and church members also were converted. So what am I saying this morning? I'm saying that Jesus is coming back. I'm saying that the coming of the Lord is very close. There is a judgment day coming. And for those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, who are trying our best to follow in His precepts and principles, we know, we know, we know that the grace and the mercy of God has been bestowed upon us. But in the walk of our life with Jesus, sometimes in our haste, in our preoccupation, sometimes in the busyness of life, we, see, allow, we allow and see things that get cluttered in our lives that need to be cleaned out. If we're looking for a reformation, reformation is thorough. God won't live or dwell in a dirty house. Repentance is a must, and there's still that praying for revival. And I don't know what that will look like. I really don't. But I've got to tell you something, friends, and I say this with a heart of passion, because everywhere that we have ever went, Barbara and I have pastored, that church has become our church. When we came to this church over six years ago, Erie First Assembly became our church. We didn't think a thing about buying into the vision and about ownership because this is our church. What happens to our church happens to us. What affects our church affects us. And I, 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 I trust that we continue to pray that God will bring us into ownership, that this is just not a place that we, we stop in on a Sunday morning It's not a touch-and-go landing of an airplane, but this is where God is calling us to worship. This is where God is calling us to serve. This is where God is wanting to meet with us on a Sunday morning and throughout the week, and it becomes our church. It becomes our church. You see, you can talk about other churches, 
I don't talk about my church because it's a part of who I am. And I want you to pray along with me as God continues to clean. And you say, well, Pastor Don, when does this cleansing ever end? It doesn't till Jesus comes. Believe it or not, there's enough down in here for God to clean and work on. It will keep him occupied till Jesus comes. But the beautiful thing is that, that after the Reformation and after the repentance, there comes a reward. And God wants to bless his people abundantly because God loves you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that God loves you? Stand with me this morning, please. Precious Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And even in a very unorthodox way, we have tried to get across the fact that there is an alarm that needs to be sounded. There is a day coming when each of us will stand before you. And we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for that great day, that glorious day. But Father, we're looking to that day of the Lord, not as our fire insurance. Not that we're going to escape hell, but we're looking for that great day of the Lord, knowing that there's going to be a celebration and a reunion that's, that's never happened before in our lives, and we're excited about that. So Father, we thank you this morning that you do love us deeply. We thank you that your word has said that there are blessings waiting for us. There are rewards that are waiting for us. There are answered prayers that are waiting for us. So, Father, may we turn our attention to you today. May we understand that there's a cleansing that needs to take place, that there is a cleansing that takes place within our lives, within our church, within our community. And, God, we know that in your love and in your mercy, you will rain down your spirit upon us, not just in drops, but in buckets and floods, because that's the kind of God that you are, a God of a second chance. So be with us, we pray, throughout this week. Keep your hand upon us and let your word be impressed into our heart and our spirit. Father, may, may the congregation this morning not be impressed with my words or my personality, but may they be impressed by the work of the Holy Spirit that does a work in each of our lives. And we give you thanks and praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. God bless you.